healthcare worker, you're probably great at taking care of others, but maybe not so good at your own self-care. You may feel you're often running to catch up, trying to multitask, and the chances are you're not alone. And it could be detrimental to your own health and well-being, both at work and in your private life. So could mindfulness help? I'm Lynn Marsland, and I'm supporting the Greater Manchester GP Provider Board as an HR and workforce professional. Welcome to another episode of the Health and Wellbeing Podcast, created especially for all our primary care staff across Greater Manchester. This is an exciting companion to the new Primary Care Excellence Project, and you'll hear from some fantastic guests with expertise in a range of topics. Everything from driving the culture that will support our health and well-being at work, through to things that might be available for you to access, right through to self-help and how you look after yourself and take responsibility for your own health and well-being. We'd love it if you got involved too. If you have a subject you'd like us to discuss, drop us an email to the address on the episode page. My guest today is Ian Rigg, an expert in the practice of and the training in mindfulness. Thanks for joining us today, Ian. We've heard the term mindfulness a lot, and some of us will already be familiar with it. But exactly what is mindfulness? You can think about it in quite simple terms. So if you bring your attention into this moment, so you just wait for a second, you just pause for a moment, and then use just a general level of awareness. So do you want to be aware in this moment, or are you caught up in stories and thoughts and looking at your phone and things like that so as you broadly just sit back reduce the distractions down a little bit and then use things like your senses so what can you smell what can you taste what can you see what can you hear can you feel your breath do you notice that so this is sort of like just engaging a little bit with external environment with the senses And then you could just pay attention to what's happening internally. So things like your thoughts, your feelings, how your body is. So once we decide to settle into the present moment and we're observing what's happening internally and externally, then obviously they might come with little judgments and preferences. We all have that. So perceptions of how things are, our preference system, which is all the time kind of whirring away in the background. So when we see see actually what's happening internally, externally, then we'll have a a moment where we might go, oh, I like this, I don't like that. What's going on with this? What's going on with that? So it's relaxing judgment. It's relaxing the preference system down a little bit, going with the flow, being okay with what is really. So that's kind of like how mindfulness is. And if you wanted a standard definition of mindfulness, it would be knowing what's happening, while it's happening, without preference. So that's a Rob Nen definition. Why and how did you start out on your meditation journey? So it started in my early teens when I was interested in martial arts movies, anything martial arts like Bruce Lee, David Carradine and Kung Fu, Jedis, Matrix, those types of things. So that was the initial start 
I thought martial artists should be able to meditate. So let's check in with that a little bit. And a friend of mine at work bought me a book called Tranquil Mind by Rob Nairn. So I read that and I thought, oh, this is cool. And then I learned that Rob Nairn taught some courses at a large Tibetan Buddhist temple in Scotland. So I decided to go on retreat with Rob. And then when I remember when I was first listening to Rob, I thought, this guy's a bit like Yoda. This is cool. So I could learn from this guy. Um, so that was the initial start. I started to do some weekend courses with Rob, some week courses with Rob. And then I just kept going from there. And I remember the first thing that I actually did was like an eight-day retreat. So I was on the retreat and standing outside on about the third day of the retreat, just minding my own business, drinking a cup of tea. And I remember just stopping for a moment, pausing and just really dropping in, tasting the tea, hearing the cow over in that field, hearing the sheep somewhere else smelling the flowers, noticing the bees. But everything seemed to happen all at once, you know, not just one thing or another thing. It's like complete connection, in with the moment. And at that moment, I thought, definitely something unusual and fantastic and whatever else is happening here, at that moment, decided to just continue meditating. And that's how I started off on the journey. And how did you begin teaching meditation within the NHS? So when I was on retreat with Rob Nairn, so it was a month retreat in South Africa or something like that, and Rob was talking about this new master's degree that he was going to be leading on in Scotland. So it was Aberdeen University and Sammy Ling and the Mindfulness Association were all working in collaboration with it. And... He said, oh, we're doing this master's degree. Maybe you should give it a look. And I said, I don't have a degree. I probably wouldn't even get on the course. He said, well, you know, give it a try because you've got some prior experience of meditating and things. And so I said, well, are you going to teach on it? He said, yes, I'm going to teach on it for maybe about three years. And I thought, well, I, w I better try to, you know, soak up as much experience from Rob as I possibly can within that period of time. So that was my main reason for deciding to do an MSc. So I got on the course and then completed the master's. And then for my dissertation, so this was about 2012, because I was working in quite a sort of stressful sort of situation. And that, at that point, I was working in young persons, drug and alcohol services, uh, coming into contact with staff who were also experiencing stress and anxiety, you know, so police, teachers, social workers, things like that. I wondered if bringing an eight-week mindfulness course into the healthcare service and delivering it to a mixed group of healthcare staff would be beneficial in some way. There wasn't a lot of research that time on mindfulness at work with healthcare professionals. There was only a few papers written. So I thought, okay, well, let's give that a go. And so that's how I started to think about perhaps delivering some mindfulness at work but yeah I was quite surprised that actually 30 staff decided to sign up within like a two-day period like 15 one day 15 the next day and I thought oh cool so I've got a course I can or two courses rather I can write this up and then from there more staff became interested because they'd heard about it word of mouth so I had a little waiting list going on and then I ran the course 
measured the results. Things like a 30% increase in mindfulness, 25% increase in self-compassion. And what I wasn't expecting was a 50% decrease in perceived stress. So that was across the board on average. So I had this evidence. People were saying that I'm sleeping better. I handle stress easier. I'm less reactive. I can notice what's happening internally, externally, a variety of different benefits. So lots of evidence. So then I decided to try to speak to anybody and everybody within the trust who would listen about the benefits of mindfulness. And I had to campaign within the trust for probably about a two-year period to try to get something moving. And then uh, mindfulness was put forward as a possible health and well-being intervention within the trust. And then I started teaching mindfulness in the trust in about September 2015. Approximately how many courses have you completed then and with how many staff have undertaken this mindfulness journey? When we first started out with the course offer in 2015, we'd run an introduction to mindfulness, an eight-week mindfulness course, and a day mindfulness. So that was kind of the format, the setup. And so far to date, I've run about 160 introductory sessions, about 60 eight-week courses, and probably about 30 days of mindfulness. So that's with that particular structure. And then We've also expanded the interventions as well. So number-wise, I would say in excess of 600 staff have now attended the eight-week mindfulness course. So that's, uh, that's quite a lot. It is. It's a, it's, a, it's a large number of staff. You mentioned before some of the benefits that, that um, people are finding from mindfulness. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about the benefits. Yeah, so I think quite a lot of the staff who actually come on the courses, maybe, you know, we'll dig into the detail in a little bit as well, come on to the course because they want to feel better in some way. So that's kind of obvious. Um, so less stressed, less anxious. A large percent of the percentage of them are not sleeping very well, you know, at least probably a half to two thirds. And that's to do with the mind that worries and ruminates and things like that. I can't switch off. Uh, so when staff come on the courses, as they begin to look at their own minds and allow the minds to settle down or give themselves an opportunity to actually pause to start off with, step off the hamster wheel, pause. And then the mind, once it's allowed to settle, you know, it would really love to settle if it possibly could, but because the mind is super distracted, we're constantly keeping it in on the go all the time and this excessive uh, sense of busyness and always being connected, it's difficult for it to kind of calm down. So people report, I feel less stressed, I feel less anxious, more in tune with internal environment, thoughts, feelings, sensations. I'm actually noticing what's going on around me, you know, in the external environment. I feel happier, more positive. And then when your system begins to settle down a little bit, and also, you know, you develop a, a level of resilience in a way as you begin to rest the mind a little bit and... From there, then, when difficulties come your way, you're a little bit calmer, you're a little bit less reactive, you can handle challenges a little bit easier. And then, you know, when you're worried less, then you can generally sleep a little bit better as well. So that's, that's some of the core benefits to start off with. And physical benefits? 
Yeah, I've had a few staff actually that have come on the courses, the thing that's just jumped in my head with fibromyalgia and things like that, or, you know, maybe chronic inflammation in the body and things. So it sounds like it might be a little bit weird. It's, you know, oh, yeah, no, people can't do that. You can't have anything change within the physical body if you're working with the mind and all of those types of things. So we could be sceptical about that. But as you begin to allow your system to calm down and perhaps maybe you decide to notice what's going on in your system, are you stressed? Well, could you slow yourself down? Could you eat better? Could you sleep better? Could you drink more water? Could you move your body more? Then obviously there'll be physical benefits that just come from that. But that comes from the awareness of actually choosing to pause, to slow down, to notice what's happening internally, and then to decide to make maybe better choices around your own sort of physical body and things like that, really. So that's just the start of how it could be beneficial in some ways on a physical level. And of course, when you decide to sleep, we know what that's all about and all of that, you know. So you mentioned there about a lot of the participants not being able to sleep, some of them having um, physical issues. But So what are the common trends that you see staff experiencing that is making them want to come on mindfulness courses? When, I, when we start the courses, actually, how, how we measure and evaluate them, which is what I also did on the MSC, was we'd measure mindfulness, self-compassion, and perceived stress using self-report questionnaires. And if we just take the perceived stress scores just as a start to answer this question, most of the staff will rate themselves in very high stress scores when they first come on the course. So that's the immediate thing. We've got staff who are highly stressed, very anxious, and uh, struggling to deal with the complexities of the difficulty of the work and job that they're involved in. As we all know, you know, we've been through the the ringer in a lot of ways over the last two years. Um, So it's coming in maybe a little bit stressed, a little bit anxious, worrying about things, struggling with the job, and then it rolls back into not sleeping and, you know, when you're less resilient and your batteries have been worn down, we could say, definitely over the last two years again. And prior to that, it was also happening as well, right, with just difficult jobs in the health service and complex clients and uh, maybe, you know, tough systems to work in and things. So that's why a lot of staff kind of end up on the course. And some of them might say, I just want to be kinder towards myself and others. I've lost myself in the mix. I have no focus. I just need to balance again, you know, so a variety of different reasons. It sounds like you're saying that there's a, a mix, really, of people who have potentially difficult problems in their home life, family life, etc., that are potentially exacerbated by work situations. But it also sounds like there are people who are struggling because of their work situations. Yeah, for sure, it'll be both. If you use uh, my example from earlier on of working in young persons' drug and alcohol services, tough job, you know, so you go to work, it's like, whoa, it's all this chaotic kind of engagement and things like that that I'm, that I'm working with here. And, yeah, I mean, we all know, again, it's easy to use the last two years as a real 
example, isn't it? As you go home and perhaps people don't have jobs or they have difficulty kind of meeting, making ends meet and things like that. And maybe we're all stuck in the house together with the family and everybody's homeschooling and also trying to go to work at the same time and juggling a lot of things. So it all fits together to build up to quite a stressful situation, really. What are the main things that you recommend for people who take on mindfulness to encourage them to take care of themselves? The first thing I I think I address is let's pause and let's slow down. So in some ways we're caught up in busy working situations, which I'm sure we're very well aware of. But also the system sort of moves very fast. So it seems like you're at work and you're on a bit of a treadmill or a hamster wheel and, and you're whizzing around and you know what it's like when you're, you're moving quickly at work from one thing to the next and you're trying to keep up with the, with the amount of work that you have. And I think sometimes people don't realise that you could even just step off the hamster wheel for a moment and just take a breath, just pause even when you're standing at the kettling or, or you're waiting for the computer to boot up or something like that, or you're in the middle of waiting for another client to arrive or something, there's a moment there where you could pause, where you could take a breath. And because we're caught up in that whirlwind of busyness, we're not aware that that could happen. We could allow ourselves to do that. So that's the first thing. Let's pause. Let's slow down. Let's allow ourselves to do that. And then the next thing that kind of pops up a lot is actually when you decide to pause and slow down and take care of yourself. And healthcare workers, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, are not so great at taking care of themselves. And I would totally agree with you on that based on just the evidence that I see from participants when I say, let's pause, let's slow down, let's... Maybe the first question I might ask somebody might be, what's your health and well-being strategy? And usually I'm met with like a puzzled expression, you know, what do you mean? And in my mind, that sort of blows my mind, you know, hold on a sec, we don't have a health and well-being strategy for ourselves. So pausing, slowing down, and then when we decide to actually allow ourselves to do that, then staff also report, oh, I feel a little bit guilty. I feel a little bit selfish for slowing down and pausing because, you know, generally the healthcare worker is great at taking care of other people and really trying the best there and expending a lot of energy in that regard. And then, you know, they don't have a lot of energy for themselves for their own sort of health and well-being strategies and things. So that gets left out. Usually they the put themselves last on the list, you know, behind work and family and all of that. And so that's a difficult nugget to, to crack right at the, the start Who told you that you should feel guilty or selfish for slowing down? Why don't you pause? Let's rest a little bit. And then the busyness of the language will also start to kind of manifest in discussion as well. So it will be things like, if I say, take a break at work, people start laughing and sniggering and moving around uncomfortably in the chairs and looking around the room and things. And at the start, I was a little bit puzzled, you know, because I thought, well, what do you mean you don't want to take a lunch break? And it's not that maybe they don't want to, maybe they've got locked into the busyness. But then I'll start to challenge that as well. And I'll say, well, you're not going to get fired for taking a lunch break, right? So let's start there. Take your lunch break, get away from your desk, go for a walk, pause, slow down, go home on time, 
you know, lots of things like that. Why are you checking emails at two o'clock in the morning on a Sunday? We know all of this, but you know, this is this is what occurs. So giving staff permission to pause. The guilty and selfish bit, we'll look at that. Let's look at some sort of program where we could develop things that might be helpful for you in that respect. That would be a good start. And then when staff arrive and they come together as a group, again, this was in the early days, when you bring a group, a mixed group of healthcare professionals, you know, anywhere from an admin worker to a consultant to an OT to a psychologist to a psychotherapist to whatever, whatever in the trust, you bring them all together in the room. Um, generally, my style is to just say, I don't need to know what you do for a job. I just need to know your first name. And that's where we start. And that's cool. So we're all balanced. We're all in the same place. Now let's talk to each other about our experience of mindfulness after we get done with an exercise, let's say. And then at the very start, I noticed that a lot of the time people weren't so good at listening to each other really either as well. So if you're in team meetings and things, you'll you'll be well aware of this. When we're sitting in team meetings, laptops are open, two phones on the table, we've got an agenda to get through, and the strong talkers within the group, so maybe the people that aren't so great, you know, have put themselves forward, maybe don't say anything, or they get steamrolled over in the conversation and things, and from there it's like, right, let's just, one person's going to talk, we'll talk in twos, what was your experience like of that particular mindfulness practice? And then the other person just listens, you're not trying to fix them, you're not trying to sort them out because that's probably what you might try to do in your normal job, help people, but we're not here for that. Let's have some space, let's pause, let's listen. And you can see how that improves as we continue through the weeks where people become more accustomed to leaving space and conversation, listening, and just kind of being okay with that. And the way that you can test that out in normal life is just have a conversation with somebody and then pause and Notice what their reaction is. <laughs> what are you doing? I've just said something. Why don't you respond almost immediately to that question? It's like, no, let's just pause. Let's reflect. Take a breath. So, yeah, there's quite a few things there to start off with, I think. I think, to my simple mind, I've, I've just picked up two things from what you were saying there, Ian, and they really resonate with me. One is we're all so busy um, we're all under so much pressure, and there is this the the, the thought that the, well I haven't got time to do mindfulness uh, at work, but from what you were saying as part of that there, it, it only takes us a second, a minute, and people can fit it in. And then I think the other thing that I've taken from this is the permission to look after yourself. If you don't look after yourself, how on earth can you continue to look after others? So my final question then, Ian, is what do you do to keep yourself healthy and balanced? So meditation, obviously. So I'll start with mind training. And if we, if we just use maybe one of Rob's statements, working with your mind is the most important thing that you can do for yourself, you know. So we always have challenges. We always have things that occur in life that are difficult to deal with, but it's how the mind kind of perceives them and how the mind operates in that moment. 
which allows you to be able to handle those challenges. So mind training is all obviously like a biggie. Doing some sort of movement, maybe this comes back to uh, something that, that I should have mentioned a little bit earlier on, really, that I noticed that we're quite sedentary in our jobs, a lot of us now. You know, if you're in IT or you're sitting at a desk and all of that for eight hours a day. And also the human being is quite comfortable with staying away from challenges now and easily kind of moves away from that. So they're not used to moving the physical body, expressing the energy in the physical body and those types of things. And that's obviously like a nice stress release. So being aware of body and allowing that to happen. So some sort of movement. So uh, practice yoga, um, you know, cycling, walking outside in nature is another thing. So if we're stuck in a small confined space in an office for a period of time, then it's helpful to go outside, be out in space, engage with nature, work positively with some aspects of your mind in some ways. So using things like gratitude and appreciation and noticing pleasant events. There's quite a lot of science to sort of back that up now. So I might decide to wander through the day just noticing you know, a little robin jumping on the wall and having a moment with a robin or something or going outside and smelling the the Christmas of the air, allowing yourself that little pause in some way, you know. So just things like that to start off with. So working with your mind, moving the body, nourishing the body, obviously, in the normal way. So taking care of basics with, you know, food, water and sleep and things like that. Going on adventures, being engaged in something interesting, and as we've figured out definitely over the last two years, engaging with people, and I'm sure quite a lot of us have missed that, so we're probably catching up now. But also what I noticed sort of personally is catching up on some hugs and things like that, you know, and trying out that level of interaction with another human being as well. And yeah, I think that's a good list to start off with. You've certainly given us plenty to think about and and lots of very simple things even if it's only making sure that you get up and make your coffee and not letting somebody else bring it to you while you're still sitting at your job. Ian thank you so much for joining us today. No problem thanks very much Lynn. Thanks so much to Ian Rigg for sharing those valuable tips and advice and his own personal experiences. We really hope you found them helpful. For more information about mindfulness and other health and wellbeing support, head to our show page. You can also find out more about the Primary Care Excellence Project. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover, there's an email address there too. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to this series via your favourite podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. And remember to tell your colleagues so they don't miss it either. This is a Fresh Air production. Look forward to speaking to you soon.